Tonight we're going to learn to dance, Jim. You ready? We're, gonna, we're almost finished with this series on marriage. We've been doing a series called The Mystery of Marriage, and we're almost finished. Um, this is our second to the last installment. Next week, we're going to talk about the bride of Christ and the, the, the great marriage that we'll have at the, at the last days, marriage feast. But tonight, we're going to talk about this. This is the verse we've been on, but we've been kind of skipping over this one part. Tonight, we're going to deal with that one part. Here's our verse tonight. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord... For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. <laughs> I know. That's another reason why I like to go kind of exegetically, if you will, even though this is a topical, um, topical series. Um, but, but we've just been going through this passage in Ephesians 5 for the past five weeks, and then now... Tonight, on Mother's Day, the cusp of Mother's Day, we get to talk about submitting. But for all you mothers in the room, I think at the end of this night, you're really going to enjoy it. We're going to do, do some good exegesis tonight, I hope. So, last week we talked about friends with benefits. And when I use the word friends with benefits, I don't mean what you normally think of when you hear the word friends with benefits, but that all friends, all real and true friends are a friend with benefits, because a friend changes you, and you change your friend, and a good friend changes you for the good. And your spouse was designed by God to be your friend with the benefit of changing you. That's why we call marriage a sacrament. It sanctifies you. It makes you holy. And that's why Paul calls it a mystery, because it looks like the gospel, and it changes us. So that's kind of a recap of last week. So this week, I want to ask a provocative question. If... Your spouse is your friend. What's up with all this submission stuff? I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't have any friends that will still be my friends if I tell them as part of our relationship, they must submit to me. <laughs> I'm trying to teach my son this. I think he's a natural born leader because every time he plays with kids, he likes to boss them around. He likes to be the commander. He's a natural firstborn. Okay. He's always bossing people around. He's always the contractor. And we try to tell him to tone that down a little bit because no one likes to be bossed around. No one wants to submit. Eventually, he'll learn, right? Because no one likes to submit. No one likes to submit. So what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with this passage, ladies, that says you must submit to your husband who is your head? <sighs> this, could be a, this could be a rough night. Now, when I do weddings... I always like to use this passage, and here's why. Because I'm standing in front of typically hundreds of people, and most of them are probably far from God, but they're there to see their cousin or their, or their nephew get married. And then Paul says in this passage, it's the gospel. So then I get to say, what's the gospel? And I get to share the gospel with a bunch of people who are far from God. But between you and me, I always cringe inside when I read this passage out loud because it says, wives, submit. It opens with one of the most offensive things you can hear in the 21st century. So here I am standing in front of the bride and the groom, and I say something like, we gather here this afternoon to celebrate the union before God between two people, Jack and Diane, and as they're getting married tonight, let us read from God's holy word. <laughs> Open with me to the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians that says, wife, submit, and I can just hear the thoughts of half of the people's thinking, that is why I have nothing to do with this God. 
So tonight we're going to deal with a difficult text. How are we going to deal with it? Well, before we move too far, let me tell you how we cannot deal with it. We can't just skip over it, as, as easy as that would be. There are verses in the Bible that I like to skip over. Can I get a, well, what? <laughs> I'm, just being, I'm just being real. The reason why we can't skip over it, because there's about a half a dozen other verses in the Bible that sound just like this. I'll read just a few up for you. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Doesn't get much more offensive than that if you're a wife. Colossians 3, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. That's Colossians. So we read Corinthians, we read Colossians. Here's 1 Peter. Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. Wow. You like that one, Jillian? <laughs> and then, of course, we have our passage tonight, which is Ephesians 5, submit to one another. So what I want to say is the way we can't deal with this is to skip over it. We can't have a high view of Scripture and then just sort of kind of pass over it and say, oh, it's a cultural thing. So tonight, what I would like to do is help us to understand it. We have to understand it. We have to study it, understand what it means, and what my hope is is to help us understand it. And then once we understand it, I honestly believe that we'll see that it's actually a beautiful thing. It's not an ugly ball and chain sort of a thing. It's a beautiful, divine kind of dance, Jim. We're going to dance. Now, before I jump into this, I need to say two things out of the gate, and that's this. First of all, I need you just to be kind to me or to be patient with me. Just don't make any judgments. Don't jump to any conclusions. Just let me get it all out. Let, wait for it, right? And then just let it come out. And then once it does, then you can judge me. Um, this is a very controversial subject. And if you know anything about theology, it still is a hotbed of controversy. So just let me get it all out, and then we'll talk about it. We're not going to have discussion times tonight because I have a lot to cover, and I just want to get it out. Also, I don't want to create any fights. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the other thing I need to say is that we're not talking about, we're talking, actually, specifically, we're talking about marriage. So we're talking about household codes. We're not talking about ecclesia or church codes, okay? That's a different verses. We're not going to deal with those verses. Now, the second thing I want to say right out of the gate is this. I believe that this verse has created huge damage, hindrance to the gospel over the years. A lot of Ultra-conservative traditionalists have used this verse to promote a soft kind of chauvinism. And I think it's hurt a lot of people, and that frustrates me. It frustrates me that, that this verse has been used to oppress women. And some of you may, may know that. It also frustrates me because Jesus didn't oppress women. I mean, Jesus did the exact opposite, actually. The way Jesus treated women was radical in his day. So one other thing I hope to do tonight is to debunk some of the myths and misrepresentations of this verse and verses like it. I hope we can do that. And then in the end, when we both, the male and the female, see what this really is about, it'd be a beautiful picture. So here's how I want to do that. If we can ask ourselves three questions about this submission stuff, I think we'll come to a resolution. What is it? What is submission? What is, also, what is the business of submission, really? Why is it in the Bible? Or another way of saying that is, why is it important to us? And then the third thing is, how do we apply it today? So what is headship? Why is it in the Bible? And how do we apply it today? Are you ready? No. Okay, so first question, what is headship? Honestly, I don't think the submission thing is hard to handle. Like, as Christians, we're all called to submit to one another. 
We're called to model Christ and be submissive. Christianity is all about submitting and serving and, and, and putting yourself at the bottom and, and letting others be greater than yourself. So when it comes to submission, that's just what we do. So I don't think the submission thing is difficult. It's this headship thing that's so repugnant. If I say submit to one another, you're like, okay, yeah, I can do that. Sure, whatever. Because your husband is the head over you. Whoa, wait, slow back, you know? <laughs> so headship. This word head is a teeny tiny little word. And when Paul uses this word, he's actually taking us all the way back to the book of Genesis. It's what Paul has been doing in this passage. He quotes Genesis. He, he says, and they will become one flesh and blah, blah. He's quoting Genesis. So he's pointing us back to Genesis. And he uses this word head which in English is the same as our word authority. And what does that mean? Well, authority actually has two senses of meanings. It means source, and it means you know, authority or power. To unpack that, let me say this. The word authority comes from the word author, and the author is the source, and he's also the, the power of it. Let me give you an illustration. One of my favorite musicians is David Matthews. I love all his music. But honestly, I don't understand half of his music. <laughs> I'm listening to him like, what is this about? So if I get time, I'll Google it. You know, what does it mean? <laughs> Have you ever done this? Find myself on one of these forums where everyone's telling you what they think the song means. And I'm reading everyone's stuff, and I'm thinking, that's cool. But how cool would it be if Dave like logged in and say, hey, y'all, this is Dave Matthews here. Let me tell you, you're all wrong. Let me tell you what I wrote this song about. It's about goldfish. And then we're all like, oh, God, I get it now. That would be cool, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be cool? It hasn't happened yet as far as I know. But the point is, is that Dave is the author of the song. He's the source of it. So he's also the authority of it. He can tell you what it's about. No one else can. Only he can. And so when we think of the word head and headship, I want us to think in terms of source. That's why Paul takes us back to Genesis, because Adam is the source. Like the, the headwaters of a river or the source of a stream, Adam is the source of Eve. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Eve came from his rib. So he's her source and her authority. And with that authority, he names her. He says, I will call you woman, which incidentally is very significant. To be able to name something is a significant thing. We're not going to talk a lot about the naming, but I could preach a whole sermon on that. It's why Jesus walks around renaming people. Your name's Simon? I shall call you Peter. <laughs> Your name's Saul? I'm going to call you Paul. <laughs> because when we submit to Christ and give him authority over our lives, he gives us a new name. In fact, that's what we all have to look forward to. In Revelation, we get a little stone, flip it over, has a name for us. Beautiful. Like I said, I'm not going to preach on that tonight, but it's a good story. So, it means source. Let's look at some verses. 1 Corinthians 11, that verse that I read earlier, the verses preceding the part I read said this, For man was not made from woman, but woman from the man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for the man. Okay, hold on, I know. You know, you're thinking, you're like, this sounds so oppressive. But it isn't. Paul's taking us back to the source theology. Because the woman was created from the man, not the other way around. He's the source. And then he also adds this, and the woman was created for the man, not the other way around. And we talked about this in great detail over the last three weeks, that God created the woman to be the helpmate, to be the helper of the man. 
God said, it's not good for that guy to be alone. He needs some help. He needs some help. So he brings him a helper, and she's perfect, like opposite of him, and is compatible with him. And just to remind you real quick that the word helper in Scripture is never a bad thing. The word always means someone who brings resources that the helpie does not have. And it's why, in fact, God can be called our helper. God is called our helper. He helps us in our time of need. So a helper is not an inferior being. So when Paul says the man was, the woman was created from the man, he's her source. The woman was created for the man because she's his helper. This is no way a negative thing at all. So what we can't do is create some sort of chauvinism where we say the man is better. The woman is less. There's no inequality here. In fact, the Bible always makes pains to almost in the next verse say, there's equality here. Look what Paul does in the next verse in, 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 in um, chapter 11, verse 11. He, he says a but or, or a however. So the man's not created for the woman, the woman for the man, but nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, comma, so man is born of a woman. So Paul just says, it's equality. Yes, Adam is the source of Eve. Yes, Eve was made to help Adam. But Adam needs help. And without the woman, we'll never be born. My mom used to say, I brought you into this world. I can take you, right? So we come from our mothers. There's equality here. The Bible, like I said, makes great pains to teach us equality. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings and therefore heirs according to a promise. So Paul says, doesn't matter if you're black, doesn't matter if you're white, doesn't matter if you're a woman, doesn't matter if you're a man. It doesn't even matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you're in Christ, we're all, we're all equal. We're all heirs to the kingdom. Each of us are children of God. There's no greater than, there's no lesser than. So the first thing we need to hear when we say, what is headship? It is not inequality. It's source, it's authority, but it's not inequality. And so oftentimes, traditionalists have used verse like this to say that the man is the leader, the woman must listen to him, and when what he says goes, and she needs to deal with it. He's the, he's the source, he's the authority, so he speaks, and she therefore doth listen. The greatest problem with that line of thinking is, is the Bible, <laughs> actually, which that leads me to my second point. So why is it in the Bible, or why is it important for us? This is where it starts to get beautiful. So let's go back to Genesis. This headship thing is rooted in Genesis. It's rooted in source. Here's a curious question. Why was it not good for the man to be alone? God looks at the man and says, this ain't good. Everything else was good, but it's not good for the man to be alone. Sin had not entered the world yet, so there's no ungood things. There's only good things. But then God says, but this ain't right. Why is it ain't right? <laughs> because God is not alone. Because God is three in one. And so when God creates man and he sees he's alone, he says, this isn't good. He needs to be in a relationship with someone else in order for this to work. So the Bible says that God created man 
in his own image. And so we're image bearers. We are the imago Dei, if you will. We look like God. And God says, yeah, it doesn't work with just one. It takes two. It takes two to make things go right, right? Because one just ain't right. Out of sight, something like that, right? Sort of. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, it takes two to make things. You got to have two. So let's look at the passage. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. This sounds kind of funny. It's poetry, by the way. The story of creation is poetry. It follows rhythm. It follows meter. It follows rules. And one of the rules that we're seeing here is the rule of repetition. And when God repeats something, it's, in, it's to emphasize it. So what's God emphasizing here? I'll tell you. He's emphasizing the fact that God created man in his own image, but man equals a them. Did you catch that? In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So when we say man, we mean mankind, right? We mean woman and man. When he created the man, he created him, he created them male and female. So what does that mean? It takes two to reflect the image of God. We combined are reflecting the image of God. Why? Because God is Trinity. So he's three persons and one Godhead, equal amongst themselves, but different and distinct. Here's the, the Westminster Confession's definition of the Trinity. There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true eternal God. That means one God, one God. Same substance or the same stuff, it's all the same, equal in power and glory. No one has more glory or more power than the other, although distinguished by their personal properties. Or another way of saying it is distinguished by their person. It just gets beautiful. Let me just tell you some more. Historically, the Trinity has been kind of like pictured by these three intersecting circles, overlapping circles. We see this interconnectedness, this overlap, these, they're all together, but yet they're also one big image. It kind of looks like Missy O'Day's logo, doesn't it? This interconnectedness, this, this thing that's happening between the three and one is a very organic kind of thing. Jesus talks about it as I and you and you and me and in, 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 in. It's very organic. Scholars call that the perichoresis. Peri comes from the Greek word to mean around. It's where we get the word period, you know, like a period of time is around or perimeter goes around a thing or a ballerina does a parouette, I think it's called, where she stands on one toe and spins around. <laughs> I guess he could do it too. He could stand on one toe. We're equality here. And then it comes from charisis, which means to contain or also to dance. So the three in one is contained in this roundness. They're around each other and they're dancing around each other. And if you know anything about dancing, it's movement in unison. So you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit moving in unison together. And what do you need in order to have a dance moving in unison? It is required that you have a leader and a follower. This is what leadership looks like when you dance. <laughs> My wife and I have taken lessons. I'm supposed to go, and then she's supposed to, and I'm supposed to just use this finger just to kind of push her a little bit, and we do like this. So I go, I go, 
and then she, she knows where I'm going, right? I give her a little, we're going this way next, and she knows. We're going for the dip, right? It requires leadership, and it requires fellowship. And that, in no way, takes away from equality and value and worth. Let me, let me show you why. The Bible says, but I want you to understand, I read this verse already, that the head of every man is Christ. No one has a problem with that. The head of every wife is her husband. We're dealing with that. And the head of Christ is God the Father. So God is the head of Jesus. Even though they're moving in this unison and this dance, they're completely equal. The definition of the Trinity is equal in glory and power. Yet someone voluntarily submits to the dance and says, I'll follow. We'll do this. Jesus says the same thing about himself. He says, I don't do anything or say anything according to my own will. I only obey the Father. That doesn't sound like equality to me, but it is. The doctrine of the Trinity proves that submission and equality are not contradictory. Interesting. Do you see now why it's in there? Do you see now why it's beautiful? God says, I'm three in one, and this oneness is a perfect unison and a perfect dance, and it's beautiful. Have you ever seen people, two people dance when both of them are trying to lead? Or even worse, when both of them are trying to follow? <laughs> We've got the original Dancing with the Stars in the Trinity, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that was bad. Thanks. LOL. <laughs> okay, so now we know why it's in the Bible. We know what it is. Headship means source and authority. Why it's in the Bible, because it says that we as one, the two who get married become one. We have this unison, and we're moving in this dance. We're imitating the dance of God. We're reflecting his character. So now how do we apply it? How do we apply it today? Well, first let me say how we don't apply it because that's what needs to be said, I think. Here's how we don't apply it. We don't apply it by making a list of rules. The woman must stay home and clean the house, and the man must go to work and be a businessman. Or the man must balance the checkbook, and the woman must take care of the children. That's typically the kind of, can I get an amen if that's kind of the list you've heard over the years? No? Okay, just one, one. Just the, the one feminist in the room. Um, <laughs> hey, I, I say that out of love. You, you know, we, we joke. Um, yeah. We can't, make that, we can't make those rules. And it's, and it's interesting. So many people have made those rules. Again, let me say this. The only problem with that is the Bible. Where does the Bible make those rules? Where does the Bible say, the man works, the woman stays home? Where in the Bible does it say, the man brings home the bacon, the woman, she puts it in the pan? It does not say that anywhere. In fact, it almost suggests the opposite. For instance, if you take Proverbs 31, the ideal woman, the, the, the model spouse, Proverbs 31 starts this way. She runs business. She sells things. She's into investment. She's into real estate. You can say she brings home the bacon and she puts it in the pan. You get the picture that she doesn't even have a husband. And that's one example. There's actually others in the New Testament. So we can't make this list because the Bible doesn't make that list. The Bible just says submit. No list. 
The only list it gives us is the example of Christ. Submit as the church submits to Christ. Here's what Timothy Keller says. He says, they may argue that women should not work outside the home, that they can teach male children, but not males over 12, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he gives a big long list. And he says, but nowhere does the Bible give such details. The Bible actually leaves us a lot of freedom here. But many writers assume very traditional understandings of masculinity and femininity that I believe, Keller says, can't be supported in the Bible. Here's the great thing about the Bible. The Bible is transcendent, which means it's for all people, for all places, and for all times. So it never ties itself or pins itself to one culture or to one time period. It can't do that. If it did that, it would have been a book that stays on the shelf and we wouldn't read it anymore. It'd be archaic. But the Bible's transcendent. It doesn't make that list. So the Bible doesn't say the man must keep the checkbook and the woman must teach the kids math because that would be ridiculous. Back then, they didn't have checkbooks, I guess. I don't know. So the Bible can't pin itself into one culture. That's why right now, we can read this text in America. Someone can read it in Botswana, and someone can read it in Asia, and it will sound different, of course, but it means the same. Because cross-culturally, we cannot say, the man works, the woman stays home, the man speaks, the woman doth listen. We can't do that. That's not what this passage means. So therefore, we cannot pin this passage on a 1950s Americana. Do you know what I'm saying? Which is what traditionalists have done. They said, this means the man goes to work, Beaver Cleaver's mom, she stays home and she cleans and she takes care of everything. That's what this verse means. We can't pin it on Amer Americana. If we did that, my question is, why don't we go further back? Why don't we go to the 1800s, where both the man and the woman stayed home, and they both worked on the land. And the man and the woman shucked the corn and milked the cow and killed the, the chicken <laughs> and taught their kids math. Why don't we go that far? We can't pin it on some cultural place. Timothy Keller says this. The pattern in marriage says that the father's headship over Christ is analogous to man's headship over the woman. So this shows that headship involves the voluntary submission of an equal to another equal, the Trinity. Then it disproves the idea that equality and submission are contradictions. And he goes on to say what traditionalists have done. Well, let me say this, because I'm getting ahead of myself. How do we apply it? I just told you how not to apply it, right? So what this often sounds like is, I'm the man, I'm the chief, and you're the little Indian, and you listen to me. And Keller says, that is a ridiculous, traditionalist distortion. It's not true. My opinion, Keller's like the evangelical pope. So you can bank on what he says, I think. I'm banking on it. So let's go back to our verse and ask ourselves, then how do we apply it? This is where I think it's just beautiful. I really think it's a beautiful dance. Let's look. First, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And the first thing I want to say is it's important to see that Paul couches this thing in the context of all of us submitting to everyone. So I submit to you, and you submit to me, and he submits to her, and she submits to him, and we all submit to one another 
in reverence of Christ. What does that look like? How do we submit to each other in reverence of Christ? A Christ who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he humbled himself. He became a man. He became a man who died and even died on a cross. That's what kind of submission we're called to towards one another. We do not consider equality a thing to be grasped, but instead we humble ourselves and serve to the point of death. So this verse says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, which I find this interesting. It's a command. Paul commands his, the women to submit to their husbands. And then he says, later on, he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, so ought, he said, so should women submit to their husbands. So this is a command, which means you don't have to do it. <laughs> Julian likes that. You, you, don't, you don't have to do it. In the same way, you don't have to submit to Jesus. He doesn't force you, is what I mean by that, right? Jesus doesn't say, you submit to me because I'm Jesus. And the Bible says, submit to me. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus, as a man, as, as the authority, as the author and perfecter, you know, he gently leads us. And sometimes we just, we say no. He gently pushes us and we gently pull away. How many of us live like that? So the Bible tells us to submit to Christ as our Lord, but how many of us don't? And when we don't, it's an ugly dance, isn't it? He's like, I'm just trying to tell you, go, you know, follow me. And we're like, yeah, I don't want to go this way. And it's ugly. Jesus is saying, if you submit to me, it'd be beautiful. So when Paul says, so wives should submit to their husbands, you don't have to. But if you don't, is it going to be pretty or is it going to be ugly? Paul's saying, if you do it, it's going to fall in line with this beautiful picture of the Trinity, and it's going to be a beautiful dance. You want an ugly dance? It's a beautiful dance. I don't know about you, but when you've got a beautiful dance, you just know it, right? When you nail it, you know it. You feel it. It's like... I think that the traditionalists want to say, you can do the dance, but it needs to be a waltz. Not a tango. And I don't know about you, but I kind of like tangos. It takes two to tango, doesn't it? A waltz just says, you listen to me. Here's where we're going. All right, so in just case you missed it, here's a definition by a famous scholar named Ray Ortland. He says this, in the, part, the definition, in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the prime responsibility to lead the partner in a God-glorifying direction, meaning he's the author and the authority. And the model of headship is our Lord, the head of the church, who gave himself for us. And we covered that last week. The man gives himself for his wife. He says, now the antithesis to male headship is male domination. And by male domination, I mean the assertion of the man's will over the woman's will, heedless of her spiritual equality, her rights, and her value. So there's the definition. All right, so let me just recap. What is this headship? Headship means source and authority. The man is the source and the authority over the woman. God designed it that way. Why is it in the Bible? Because it reflects the Trinity. It reflects this oneness, three working together in perfect harmony. In our marriages, when we marry our spouse, the two become one and we work together in perfect harmony. 
That's a beautiful thing. That's why it's in there. God wants to maintain his own glory by giving us the opportunity to glorify him. Then how do we apply it? We can apply it by chauvinism or even soft chauvinism. It's not allowed. The Bible's about equality. We can't do that. The Trinity is about equality. The Trinity approves that equality and submission are not mutually exclusive or contradictory. They must fit together. How do we apply it? We apply it by the man filling his role, the woman filling her role, and when they do it, it's a beautiful dance. Here's how I think we apply it. I think that submission is the woman's ministry. Does that make sense? God says, I've called you to minister. And this is the way you minister to your husband by submitting to him. And as you minister to him in this way and allow him to lead, you'll see that he's pretty good at that. God created him that way, and it's a beautiful dance. It's not the man's right to demand it. Does that make sense? It's her ministry, not his saying you need to. And so when we do it in a ministry, it should feel like all ministry. You know what ministry feels like. When you serve in ministry, when you give God your gifts, it feels good. And so when a woman submits to her husband, it's like a ministry and it feels good. It's her ministry, not his right to demand of her. So I want to bring it back to Jesus real quick. All of this submission and headship stuff is really couched in who Christ is. All of our relationships with Christ could be characterized by submission and headship. I mean, if we really love Jesus, then he's our head, and we willingly submit to him, and it makes us happy. He's Lord of all. So that's really what all, this is all about. And when Paul says that, the, the, that marriage is a mystery, and he says, and I'm not talking about marriage, I'm talking about the church and Jesus. You and I could say, no, you were talking about marriage. Why did you say that you weren't talking about marriage when you were talking about marriage? Because he's saying, your marriage is a picture of the gospel. So this submission and this authority is just like our submission to his authority in our lives. Each of us have a role, each of us have a place to play in, in exemplifying or illustrating the gospel. What's the man's role? What's the woman's role? How does the man reflect Jesus in the gospel? For God so loved the world that he gave his son that, that he would not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humble himself to die on a bitter, cruel cross so that we can have redemption of our souls. How does the man reflect that? And how does the woman reflect that? Here's how the man reflects that. The man says, I'll do anything for you. I will sacrifice my life for my bride just as Christ sacrificed his life for the church. The man essentially says something like this. He says, I'll fight for you. I'll lie for you. I'll walk the wire for you. Shoot, I'll die for you. You know it's true. <laughs> Everything I do, I do it for you. That's what the man says. And when he does that, he sounds like Jesus. The man is the one who carries his bride across the threshold and says, I'll do anything for you. I love you. He reflects Christ when he does that. How does the woman reflect Christ? Does she reflect Christ by carrying her husband across the threshold and saying, baby, I'll give my life for you? Does she say, I'll fight for you. I'll lie for you. I'll walk the wire for you. I'll die for you. Does she say that? 
No, she doesn't. How does she reflect the gospel and reflect Christ? She does it by following Jesus and his role to submit to his father, that he would not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbles himself and he submits to the point of death. The man reflects Christ by washing her and bathing her and sanctifying her and giving his life for her. The man exemplifies Christ by following Jesus in true submission and humility. And when the two are doing this together, it's a beautiful divine dance. It's not pushing and pulling and biting and backstabbing. And it's not a ball and chain. And it's not a demand. You must listen to me because I'm the leader. It is a, we're in a dance, baby, and we work well together because we're both trying to exemplify our role in this unity. So at this point, we're going to take communion.